All right. Good morning. Now we're we're back on uh, now in a hearing of the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere transnational crime, civilian security, democracy, human rights, and global women's issue. And the, the title. If we could, uh, if you guys are coming to the hearing, you need to sit down. Thank you. She's like, I'm at home here. Close the door. <laughs> We're working over here. All right. Anyway, this is uh, the title of the hearing is The Future of Iraq, What's Next After ISIS? So we'll have one panel testifying here today, and the panel features, of course, uh, former Congressman Frank Wolf, who was just part of our previous nomination hearing as well, where he introduced uh, the president's nominee to be the ambassador at large for religious freedom. His, uh, he's a distinguished senior fellow at the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative. And Ms. Denise Natali, who is the director of the Center for Strategic Research at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. And both of them have long and distinguished careers, and we're fortunate to have the benefit of their expertise and testimony here today. The hearing is especially timely, not only because we have a new administration that is still working through and formulating its Iraq policy, but also because for some of the communities in Iraq, there are in question that are in question and are being impacted. For them, the hour is late and their continued presence in the lands they've inhabited since antiquity literally hang in the balance. Three years ago, ISIS began a brutal campaign in northern Iraq, a campaign against Christians, Yazidis, Shia Muslims, and other smaller religious minorities, ruthlessly murdering innocent men and women and children and destroying communities that have been there for millennia. The images of these vulnerable communities fleeing for their lives sent shockwaves around the world. During the ISIS siege of Mount Sinjar, tens of thousands of Yazidis were trapped without food or water, and the Islamic State massacred and kidnapped and enslaved members of this community. Girls were separated by eye color and sold as sex slaves to ISIS fighters based on their preference. Similarly, in Iraq, ancient Christian community, their, their ancient Christian community is and was under assault. 50,000 fled Mosul to the Nineveh Plains as ISIS advanced eastward. Days after the Sinjar massacre, ISIS seized Kurokosh, which is the city in Iraq with the second largest population of Christians, and thousands more were displaced. Death, kidnapping, and forced conversions ensued. Places of worship and holy sites that had been there for centuries were defaced. They were bombed, looted, destroyed, including the 1,400-year-old monastery of St. Elijah. It was clear that the bloody campaign targeting ethnic and religious minorities amounted to genocide. And the Obama administration and now the Trump administration have rightfully declared it as such. While these designations are significant, quite frankly, even historic and clearly justified, the fact is that the words alone are cold comfort to these communities whose lives have been upended, places of worship destroyed, and their communities and families ripped apart. One of the issues that prompted this hearing is the seeming disconnect between the millions of dollars in U.S. humanitarian assistance to Iraq and the inability of these communities targeted with genocide to adequately access this aid. Clear congressional directives over multiple years have gone unheeded, unimplemented, and frankly, ignored. There has been an over-reliance beginning during the previous administration and seemingly continuing apace today under the new administration on the United Nations Development Fund to administer U.S. assistance. This US UN agency has shown little interest in following congressional appropriations language, and our own U.S. government agencies have not demanded that accountability. And so I'm heartened that, the, that Administrator Mark Green himself, a former member of Congress, is now at the helm of USAID, and I know he is personally invested in addressing this issue. Despite divisions within Iraq's religious minority communities, I was encouraged to learn of the creation of the Nineveh Reconstruction Committee, a formal ecumenical partnership between the three largest Christian churches in Iraq, the Chaldean Catholic Church, the Syriac Catholic Church, and the Syriac Orthodox Church, representing the overwhelming majority of Christians that remain in Iraq. This was an important step. As we discussed the plight of Iraq's religious minority communities, we also must look at the broader context of Iraq's minorities, particularly the Kurdish people living in Iraqi Kurdistan. Once again, all eyes were on Iraq last week as the Kurdistan regional government pressed forward with their non-binding referendum for independence from Iraq despite broad international calls to delay, including from the highest levels of the U.S. government. I was among those urging a delay for many reasons, not the least of which was my concern about how the already vulnerable religious minorities, especially those residing in the contested areas, would fare in such a scenario. Following the referendum, the tensions are predictably high. At this time, 
The, the U.S. is not supportive of a unilateral referendum by the KRG. However, we must urge restraint from both sides and work with both sides to de-escalate tensions between Baghdad and Erbil, as well as with Iran and, and Turkey. Any violence or further escalation from any party will only deepen the problem. I'm concerned about news reports that Iranian and Turkish militaries are engaged in provocative military exercise, exercises near the Kurdish regions in Iraq, and that the central government in Baghdad is taking retaliatory and even discriminatory action against the KRG and Kurdish members of parliament. The KRG are important partners in the fight against ISIS, and we, along with our partners, including Iraq's central government, must maintain our focus on defeating ISIS. In the interim, we should support KRG requests for mediation with the government of Iraq and create space for them to present its views. In the coming weeks and months, the U.S. must be forward-leaning in our Iraq strategy in the hopes of preserving the communities that have been a part of the fabric of Iraq for centuries. Their continued existence and even their flourishing is not simply a moral imperative given the grave injustices that they have suffered. It is also a key strategic and national security priority because they are key to any future pluralistic Iraq that respects religious freedom. Often we consider patience a virtue, but the time for patience on this issue has passed. Urgency must now animate us moving forward. The U.S. should implement timely and targeted assistance to the Christians, Yazidis, and other minority internally displaced persons targeted by ISIS so that they are able to return to their homes. I look forward to the recommendations from our witnesses in this regard. You have experience that will contribute greatly to this discussion. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And just briefly, we have great witnesses here on an important topic. Um, we, we can't take for granted the continuing battle against ISIS. The, the progress has been very, very strong since August of 2014 when President Obama decided that they were a significant enough a threat that we should take action against them. And our military leadership working in tandem with the coalition has done really good work on the battlefield and more remains to be done. However, as the ISIS pressure has been reduced in some parts of the country, other pressures come to light, pressures that might have been temporarily sidelined as everybody focused on the battle against ISIS. Um, I've been in Erbil and, and dealt with the issues that the chair was talking about, tensions between Erbil and Baghdad, dealt with a, a, Chal a Chaldean Catholic church in, in Kurdistan and church leaders there and see significant tensions ahead, uh, and we need to get ahead of them rather than than just be in a responsive posture. And I think the witnesses today have good recommendations for us, analysis of the situation, but even better, we do a lot of uh, diagnosis up here and sometimes are short on the prescription, but I think the witnesses are not just gonna give us a good diagnosis, but I've read their written testimony. I think they're gonna offer us some prescription as well, which is important. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. With, with, that, with that, I guess, uh, well, uh, the Honorable Frank Wolf, we again welcome you to the microphone for the second time to this morning, but on, on this very important topic, you've been, you have a long history of contribution. I know you've traveled to the region re recently, and we thank you for being here, and we look forward to your testimony. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Rubio, Senator Kane, and Senator Shaheen. I appreciate the hearing very, very much. After a week visiting Bartella, Karakosh, Dehuk, Erbil, Mosul, Nimrod, Mount Sinjar, and Sinjar City in August, and talking with individuals from the various communities, I am sad to say that a bold action, bold action is now taken by the end of the year. I believe a tipping point will be reached and we will see the end of Christianity in Iraq in a few short years and a loss of religious and ethnic diversity throughout the region, a loss which will not be regained and could result in further destabilization, violent extremism, and terrorism across the Middle East. In other words, ISIS will have been victorious in their genocidal rampage unless concrete action is taken. Iraq is a land rich with biblical history. Abraham was born there. Daniel lived and died there. And many events in the Bible took place in Iraq. And yet, we have already seen the Christian population drop from 1.5 million to now 250,000, or less, some even say 150,000, over the course of the last 14 years. This exodus continues with additional families leaving every day in search of physical security, economic security, and education. And we spent the past three years as internally displaced people, IDPs. Many Christian families are at a crossroads, having to decide whether or not they should return to the newly liberated villages or just leave Iraq forever. Despite their best efforts, many believe that they can stay only if bold action 
is taken by the United States and other international partners to ensure their security. While I went expecting to hear further reports about security concerns related to ISIS, I was surprised to find that most individuals I spoke with were concerned about the various military factions controlling their towns and villages. In particular, the Hashta al-Shabi, also known as the Popular Mobilization Forces, or the PMF. The Hashta al-Shabi militia, which is backed by Iran and other militias groups, are filling a vacuum left with the post-liberation. This is part of the Iranian goal of creating a land bridge from Iran through Iraq and Syria to reach a port in the Mediterranean. We went through checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint. It wasn't a Peshmerga. It wasn't the Iraq military. It was this militia group. Since a land bridge will allow Iran to move fighters, weapons, and supplies to aid Hezbollah and other terrorist groups, this will be a direct threat to Israel, a direct threat to the United States military, as well as others in the West. Literally, they'll be able to get in a, a van in Tehran, drive from Tehran through Iraq, through Syria, to a port in the Mediterranean. Among the Yazidi community, we hear many of the same concerns. Sinjar is a prime example of the complications the minority communities on the ground continue to face. Considered a contested territory by the central government and the Kurdistan regional government, Sinjar has been liberated from ISIS since the fall of 2015. However, it is currently controlled by multiple different militia groups. We saw very few who have returned. There was a house here, then nobody for blocks, then another house here, then nobody for blocks. Due to this, few families have been able to return and few aid groups work in the area due to the potential volatile situation. After having been the victims of genocide and with 3,000 other women and girls still held in captivity. And yesterday there was a hearing on, on the House side. There was a Yazidi woman there who testified and she said she saw the person who did what, and I won't go into what he did to her, living in a refugee camp, maybe funded by the UN, maybe then therefore funded by the United States. So this ISIS guy got room and board, basically, and the Yazidi community is just pretty much for, forgotten about. And there's no counseling service for these young girls and women who have been held by ISIS over the years. One of the Yazidi religious leaders we met with stated, he said, we just want to be able to live. Unfortunately, to a large extent, U.S. government assistance has not been forthcoming to Iraq's Christians and the Yazidi communities, even though the president, the vice president, Congress, and the secretary of state have declared them victims of genocide. Many of the displaced Christians, for example, have had to seek the mainstay of their aid from private charitable sources on a piecemeal basis over the last three years. This is becoming more difficult as many individuals who give to humanitarian organizations are facing donor fatigue. It's imperative that the United States help the Christians and the Yazidis to return to their hometowns. As a UN official aptly stated in a recent meeting, quote, the religious minorities need unique solutions. What works to return Sunni Muslims to Mosul will not work to return religious minorities to congested areas. Since 2014, Congress has had over 40 different hearings related to ISIS, including seven specifically on the topic of religious minorities, and required the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development to spend some funds on assistance specifically for genocide survivors from religious and ethnic minorities. Congressional resolve and the force of law must be matched by administration action. Some recommendations. Now that the military battle with ISIS is largely over, our government needs fresh eyes. We need almost fresh eyes on the target to bring some people, almost like the Baker-Hamilton Commission did to Iraq before, to fresh eyes, not only to see with regard to current policies, the victims of genocide, war crimes, but also because of the critical national security interests in the region. If the Iranians get a carter to the Mediterranean, there are going to be some serious problems. We have a vested interest because we lost 4,000 Americans, gave their lives, and we spent over $2 trillion of taxpayer money. Secondly, a presidential decision directive or a presidential memorandum should be issued directing the State Department and USAID to immediately address the needs to communities identified by Secretary Tillerson as having been targeted by genocide. This would address both humanitarian aid for those living as IDPs and refugees and stabilization assistance for those returning to the areas. Thirdly, a post should be established by the White House 
for an interagency coordinator to guarantee that the needs of these communities are adequately addressed to ensure their safety and preservation consistent with the United States foreign policy. When President Bush appointed Senator John Danforth, I think he used to serve on this committee, to be the envoy to work on similar issues in, in Sudan, the announcement was made in the White House, in the White House Rose Garden. It was the day before 9-11, with Senator Danforth standing between President Bush and Secretary of State Colin Powell. This sent a message, a powerful message to the world and to the suffering people of Sudan. So I recommend the same level of announcement for the person to fill this position. It would be held at the White House, President Trump and Secretary Tilson, and would send a message to America is engaged, and the Christians and the Yazidis and those who have suffered genocide would know that it's just not words that we really have someone to really work on this. Now when groups come into town, they don't, do they go to AID, do they go to the State Department, do they go to the DOD, do, there will be one place to go, and I think this is very important. Lastly, uh, Congress should immediately pass H.R. 390, the Bipartisan Iraq and Syria Genocide Emergency Relief and Accountability Act, authored by Chairman Chris Smith and co-authored by Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. It gives explicit authorization for the State Department and USAID to identify the assistant needs of genocide survivors from religious and ethnic minority communities and provide funding to entities, including faith-based entities, effectively providing them with aid on the ground. This is essential because some within the State Department and USAID have claimed they lack the authority to deliberately help religious and ethnic communities, even if they are genocide victims and will become extinct without assistance. Although there's nothing in US law preventing them from helping genocide surviving communities, the authorization will help ensure the aid actually flows to the victims. The House passed HR 390 on June 6th, and Senate Foreign Relations passed it on September 19th. Hopefully the Senate will pass the bill quickly so it can be sent back to the House, and then the President for signing. Also, it deals with dealing, it dealing with those who have committed criminal activities. We remember after, after Nazi Germany, many of the Nazis embedded themselves, went to America, went to different countries. We funded an office at the Justice Department to track them down. In Rwanda, the same thing. Rwandans who were involved in genocide spread. You couldn't find them. You had to track them down. The same thing in Srebrenica. You had Serbs and Croats who were involved in, in, in genocide with regard to the Bosnians. And we had to track them down. These ISIS people are going to begin to spread and move and go around. And frankly, I think we need what Mr. Smith's bill does. Lastly, there's still time. But the hour I personally will be, and I may be wrong. I mean, I, 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 I may be wrong. Uh, I think the time is about to run out. We cannot allow ISIS to be successful in the genocide. We are eating these people not because they're Christians, not because they're Yazidis, not because they're Shia Turkmen, but we're aiding them because they were subject to genocide, and the word genocide carried a powerful message. So they are waiting, and many were just are waiting and waiting. So I think there is time, but if we don't do something by the end of the year, I think we'll reach a tipping point, and I think it will be over. Well, thank you for that. Dr. Natale. Do you mind turning on the microphone? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee for the opportunity to testify on the future of Iraq's minorities. I'd like to note that these are my personal views and not those of the United States government, the Department of Defense, or the National Defense University. I'd like to talk about where I see the, 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 the vulnerabilities of the minorities, much of this based on my 25 years working in and out of the north. I just came back two weeks ago from the north as well as Baghdad, speaking to a host of folks. Much of this, in my view, after ISIS is rooted in the larger political framework of Iraqi politics. And of course, as you indicated, uh, the differences within the minority, these religious minority groups. In addition to Yazidi and Christian, as you indicated, there are Turkmen, Armenian, Circassian Jews, Kakai, Shabaks, Faili Kurds. Many of these groups are all living in northern Iraq. Um, despite their, in addition to their shared persecuted be beliefs for their religion, a lot of these groups also have overlapping ethnicity, language, geography, so that some of the Yazidis that are living in one part are very divided, or they're emphasizing the fact that they're not Kurdish, and others 
are differentiating themselves from Sunni Muslim Kurds, as they will say, within the Assyrian community. And there was a fantastic document that just came out called Erasing Assyrians. They now actually emphasize that they're an ethnic group that's in the process of being um, uh, dis you know, distinguished, um, is extinguished, excuse me, alongside the fact as the Kurdistan regional government controls Nineveh. My point is these groups are divided between their support for the Iraqi government, their support for the Kurdistan regional government, and many, many, many who just want to be left alone and live uh, autonomously. The biggest threat, in my view, after ISIS is the fact that these minority groups are caught in the po political crossfire, and they're being used as cannon fire fodder for everybody else's contestations. The biggest, as you've indicated, is the issue of the disputed territories. I, I don't think enough attention is being given to the fact that most of the territories of the minority groups are in northern Iraq. They regard this as their ancestral lands. The Iraqi government and the Kurdistan regional government regarded as disputed and their own. They're not strong enough to defend themselves, so again, they're being put in this crossfire. I agree, in addition, there's this proliferation of militia that's all across Iraq. Just, just not to be an academic nitpick, but of these Hashtashab, 80% are, are Iraqi, are with the Iraqi government. Between 10 and 30% are backed by Iran. But there's a significant group that are official, they're integrated with the Iraqi government, and in fact, some Yazidis are also working with these popular mobilization forces. So we need to be careful about making these kind of differentiations um, about all of the Hashtashab when they're in certain parts and they're not, and they're being, they're coordinating with other Christian groups. Now, when I was back in March, there, were, there was violence that broke out in Sinjar, and that violence affected the Yazidis, as the Honorable Frank Wolf said, but the violence was between two Kurdish groups. So we have to be careful, again, when, we, when we're looking at who's fighting whom and how Yazidis, Assyrians, and everybody else is caught, caught in this crossfire. I'll make a couple of points about the Kurdish referendum. Again, that has actually exacerbated the tensions and the threats to these minority communities, not because people are directly targeting them with gunfire, but now that has enhanced divisions, not only between Baghdad and Erbil, but between Arabs and Kurds. And it's, it's going to prevent some of these groups, again, the internally displaced populations, and most of these people have not gone back, as has been indicated, from going back to their territories. So there's regional threats, there's threats from the militias taking advantage for this, and there's threats from both of these groups, and these minority groups have very weak security forces themselves to protect themselves. So what do we do? Um, my recommendation is that we have to underline, uh, look at the underlying political issues. If you don't handle the political issues, then these minority groups are still going to be caught in the crossfire. This is highly localized, it's complex, and it's tied to the cohesion of the Iraqi state. I would suggest three uh, recommendations. One is to support minority group rights in conjunction with the Iraqi constitution. There's a constitution that exists. Um, we should enhance this decentralization and self-protection within the existing structure. There's also need for developing a security and political architecture that was not fully developed. Again, that includes training minority uh, police, local police, and every of the communities across Iraq, by the way. Every Sunni Arab community I talk to, every Kurdish, everyone needs and wants local protection because they don't trust anybody. And I think the Assyrians and the Yazidis are the, are the most affected because they've been the most neglected. Secondly, reinforce a sovereign civil state in Iraqi institutions. This, was, this last trip uh, two weeks ago was very insightful in the fact that when I was in Baghdad, um, I spoke to Sunni Arab tribal sheikhs, every minority, and there was some kind of cautious optimism, they told me, in the fact that Iraqis want a civil state. They are fighting against sectarianism. There are groups that are coming together at a local level. They're having cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, and this is a very good momentum. It's a moment. There's this very strong movement of Iraqi nationalism right now. There's a great pride 
and the counterterrorism forces that, by the way, the United States trained. This is a great success. And every Iraqi, even the Sunni Arab tribal sheikhs who, who are criticizing the Iraqi government said, we trust these people. So there's, this is a moment that I think that we should build upon the movement toward a civil state. Grand Ayatollah Sistani is calling for this. And move away from this ethno-sectarian language, Sunni Shia Kurd, that most Iraqis don't want to use. We're creating it, we're enforcing it, and they're trying to move away from it. My final point is because so much of this is, is rooted in the disputed territories, we have leverage. Mediate the disputed territories. Help broker these local power and revenue sharing agreements, not only between Baghdad and Erbil, but between the local communities. Use our leverage. We have it. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. You ready, Senator? I'm going to defer to Senator Sheen first, since you and I know we'll be staying. We will be. Yeah, Senator so Sheen. Senator Sheen. Um, I want to start, Mr. Wolf, I, I guess from looking at your report after you came back from your trip. Can you comment on the different options to establish security in the area? Because clearly one of the biggest impediments for people going back is the lack of security. And who, who can they depend on for security? The Iraqi government, um, their own, are there frag remnants of uh, police officers from their communities who can take over? What's, what's the option there for security? In every meeting, you're right, Senator, security came up in every, every meeting, and the definition of security de was different depending on who you were talking mm -hmm. to. Uh, they don't want the 82nd Airborne. They're not asking for sure. American soldiers. But they would like, they believe, a base, an American base, a uh, Western base, where you have American NATO forces training, as uh, uh, Mrs. Dr. Natalie said, training. They would like to see some presence of, of the West there. Others are asking that there be some, uh, there was the Levin Amendment passed by this committee or by armed services years ago that provided, it is law, provided for the training of some of the, uh, the, the National Guard, I don't want to call them militia, the NPU, they're different groups, to train them for human rights, religious freedom, basically a police department or basically a National Guard. There are a number of, of options out there. Uh, many don't trust some of the more organized groups without getting into controversy. They, 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 the Yazidis were up on Mount Sinjar and they were told to give their weapons away by uh, some people in the Peshmerga. They gave them away, and the next morning they woke up. Mm. The lady yesterday who testified has lost 19 people in her family. So there's a certain mistrust. So one, they would like to see a presence of the United States, and I think it does make sense to have some base there. We have a base in South Korea. We've been there for years. We, have a, we still have mil military in uh, Germany. And so have a, a NATO base where you would train they're a National Guard just to defend their villages, not to be a point of the spear against everybody, but security was the number one issue every different time they come up. Security, security, security. Um, you talked about the Iranian presence there, and it's been pointed out to me that in Syria, for example, that um, many of the fighters for Hezbollah and the Iranians who are in Syria are moving their families there and actually um, settling, taking over lands that were originally um, owned by the Syrians. Are you seeing evidence of that in Iraq as well, either of you? Yes, yes, we are. The, uh, the Iranians are funding a certain group, Shia, uh, not those who have been persecuted, but she had to right. come in and buy the homes of Christians. If you're a Christian man and family, do you stay? Do you go? Your one daughter 17, another's 15. Do you go or you're not? Are we going to get security? So they're selling. And so what the Iranians are doing are putting people in there to buy properties, and they're buying them by here, here, through the Nineveh Plains. And thirdly, they are afraid that Tehran will run this. We have seen reports of this guy, uh, Soleimani, the Quds are there. So, right. yes, this, the Iranians have a concerted effort to dominate that region for a certain portion to create a land bridge, or some people call it a crescent, 
that will literally go all the way into Syria, in, into the Mediterranean. But yes, there is a formal effort. One thing both governments, both the Kurds and the Iraqis could do is put a moratorium on selling property for at least a period of a time. Mm -hmm. But there is a concerted effort by the Iranians to buy up property so they will have people there. Dr. Natali, in your opinion, what what's the balance that should be struck in many of these communities between those who want to return to the communities, those who want to um, be resettled elsewhere in Iraq, those who want to leave Iraq? What should that be up to the individual um, folks to make that determination, and how can we help make that happen? Thank you, Senator. And I'd like to answer the question about Iran since sure. you asked both of them. Sure, that'd be great. So, so, so the balance is most of these people would like to return, as, as, as Honorable uh, Frank Wolf said, um, if the security was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're caught between Baghdad, who doesn't have the resources and is focused on, on ISIS, and let's be frank, the Kurdistan regional government, according to many, some who have been co-opted and are, you know, they're taken care of, and many Syrians use the word the Kurdification of the Nineveh Plains. Mm. So we have to be very careful about even taking sides between these two, and the vast majority would like to go back and say we have control, some form of autonomy. That is something new. Before ISIS came, by the way, there was a movement, a, mo a motion in the Iraqi parliament that was going to create a new governorate for the Assyrians, for the minorities. And then ISIS came and that fell apart. So there are some discussions going on in the Iraqi parliament to allocate within the existing provincial structures, we're not talking about breaking up states, to allocate special territorial administrative autonomy to these groups. That got sidetracked, okay? So part of it is the security, I absolutely agree. We, we are training, and, and be careful about which militias we're saying really represent these people. Everyone's saying right now they represent, they don't represent. So we have to be careful about getting too involved in that. Um, and the second part is reconstruction. Those donor countries that, you know, the, the, don the donations or the contributions to reconstructing Iraq are minuscule. So, and the NGO communities aren't engaging to the extent that they can because of security. So there's those two elements right there. But I go back to my, my, my point is, this should be conducted within the framework of the Iraqi state. If we start getting into territorial engineering, then we're, in my view, fueling some of these conflicts. I do would like to make some point, if I may, about, about the Iranian element, because I think, I think this is important. I did go this last trip, I go regularly to and back to the region. This last trip was to look at the extent of Iranian influences in addition to the referendum. Yes, there is increasing, let's be nuanced about this, increasing Iranian influence to fill power vacuums by particular militia. Now, I spoke to, the, to officials in the Iraqi government. I spoke to the prime minister for over an hour, Prime Minister Abadi and others. There are two main groups, the AAH and Hizbi Kitab. There's different, different figures. Some will say as low as 10%, some will say as high as 30%. That's where they represent. And they're called the disciplined and the undisciplined. So those are the undisciplined. As long as ISIS is there, they'll say, we can't bother getting rid of them because at least they're not a threat to us. So they will be there. Are they gaining influence in some areas? Yes, they are. I'll give you an example. In Mosul, and this was told to me by the leading, several leading Arab sheikhs that I spoke to, Sunni, they are recruiting through salaries, food baskets, um, paying, and they're joining. So ahead of a tribal, tribal sheikh is very worried. He's, I'm losing my people, Sunni Arabs joining, not the regular Hashdashab. That's, that's what the Iraqi government, they're joining the, the, the Iranian-backed ones. And so that, you know, that's a concern. The second part, there's another part, and this was indicated, in a Christian town called Bartella, there's actually a new Imam Khomeini elementary school and they're flying a flag there. Is that, are they directly targeting the Christians? No. Are they there and going to enhance sectarian tensions? Yes. So, and then the fourth point is, even though Prime Minister Abadi, who I think is someone that we should continue to support, he's a moderate, he's done remarkable things in bringing Iraqis together, this, all of this bid can be used to enhance his challenger, which is 
former Prime Minister Maliki. And as, particularly even this referendum, that's where they're going to try to get their influence as well. So they're there. But I think we should be careful about saying all of it is Iranian focus. And my final point is there's a long border between Iran and Iraq. Mm -hmm. The Kurds have a long border. And I lived there for many years. When the Iranians shut the border, you're doomed. So there's a lot of influence between the Kurdish region and Iran commercially. You can't say you're going to completely remove it, but it's these nefarious, undisciplined militia that I think we need to hone on. And that's the 10 to 30%. Be careful about how much influence can come in because of services. So if somebody can provide services, yeah, sure. people are joining them because everybody's human. They want electricity, they want food, and they want salaries. So that's, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but that's where I see the influences that we should be concerned about. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, this is very helpful testimony, and it's, it's the treatment of minorities, but it's also big picture. What should our Iraq policy be? Obviously, that they connect so strongly, and when minorities get treated poorly, as was the case after 2011, a lot of the reason that ISIS was able to run wild and get a lot of territory is that the Sunni parts of Iraq felt like they had sort of been abandoned by the central government, and they weren't necessarily immediately going to join up and fight against ISIS with a government that they didn't trust. So creating a government that has the trust of minority groups is really important, not just for the safety of the minority groups to avoid genocide, but for the future of the country. There was an article that was last week in Foreign Policy, an ominous future for Kurdistan's minorities. I just want to read a portion and just get you both to comment on this, if, this is, if you think this is sort of an accurate statement. But the issue of the disputed territories and who will ultimately govern them also throws the fate of Iraq's myriad religious and ethnic minorities into question. These groups, like the Yazidis, Turkmen, Christians, and, Shab and the Shabak, have been persecuted by ISIS in the disputed territories and are now forced to choose which government, Iraq or the KRG, they deem less oppressive. Quote, the competition between the central government and the KRG over the loyalty of minority groups in the Nineveh Plain is one of the main drivers of conflict there from Saddam's time onward. Um, if that is the case, if there's this competition between the central government and the KRG, and we are dealing with both of them, providing aid through Baghdad that goes to the KRG, what role should we be playing in trying to reduce this tug of war and these minority groups sort of being forced to, to choose which government that they'll be aligned with? Um, I, I agree with that foreign policy analysis. I would say yes and. And because of the political and security vacuums, because these two, there are also malicious and sub-state groups that they're also in, in, involved in. Mm -hmm. So some of the, for example, the Kurdistan Workers' Party groups that are Kurds in Syria have made their way to Sinjar. So they're also forced to choose between Baghdad, Erbil, and other groups in these areas, okay? Who, who's, mm -hmm. So that's one part. Um, I don't put between Baghdad and, and the Kurdistan region, because most of the territories of the minorities are in northern Iraq, and because the Kurdistan region or government has taken de facto control, it's actually, for these groups now, they're under, the threat is different. For Baghdad, it's because they're not giving enough attention, mm -hmm for the Kurdistan region is they're trying to control them. So the Assyrians will say, I never, the, historically the Assyrians did not make claims that they were being erased ethnically. Mm -hmm. They were working with the Iraqi government. The bigger supporters of the Iraqi government were the Christians. It was only after 2003 and then 11 that they're saying, this is the Kurdification of our planes. So I would say, back to keeping the Iraqi state whole, Support does go through the Iraqi government through provincial councils. This idea of pitting the Kurdistan region against Baghdad also became enhanced after the ISIS campaign. So Baghdad, through the minorities themselves, through, within the existing councils, I wouldn't suggest going through the Kurdistan regional government, but provincial councils, localities. We're not dealing with localities. But again, through the Iraqi government, that's different than saying give it to Baghdad, then to the Kurdistan regional government. Give it to Baghdad, and then to the provinces. Congressman Wolf. Well, I agree with the statement, whoever wrote that. Uh, 
we, we, we talk to parents and young people. They, they just want security for their mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. They have seen, again, the Christian population has dropped from one and a half million in 2003 down to 250,000. Some say 150,000. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you have young kids, this is your last year you're going to stay. You're not going to wait. You're, you're, you're living in a, in, in a tent. Mm. We went into one tent. It was a man who had been a technician in the hospital in, 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 in Mosul. Mm -hmm. And uh, his mother and father were lying on the floor and, and covered with... I mean, he, he said, I got to get out of here. Mm. I got to get out. So they're waiting to see what we do. And that's why I think, one, we need fresh eyes. We need... Bring in some new. Now I'm not criticizing the previous, right. but it's just to see things change. Secondly, I think you need one person mm -hmm. who has the responsibility. One, I don't know if either of you know Senator Dan, Danforth. I think John Danforth did an mm -hmm. incredible job. It was not a full time job. He, I think he continued to live out in St. Louis for that period of time. But one person who was the point of contact. And what he was able to do working with Colin Powell, he could get to the president, get to Secretary Powell, was that able to bring that north-south peace agreement for a new southern Sudan. I think you need one person who has the support of the president, the support of Secretary Tillerson, the support of, 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 both of both of you to give that authority. Because I don't think there's any one simple yeah. answer. You do this, you do that, yeah. it all works out. But... They want to see some progress. And if they don't see progress, I think they're going to leave. I had one Catholic priest say, Mr. Wolf, help us to stay. Mm -hmm. But if you're not going to help us to stay, help us to leave. And lastly, I believe, I'm very pessimistic, I believe the Iranians will move in so fast. Nasrallah, the people who are involved with the Marine barracks, I remember Dan Coates and I went to the Marine barracks when they were blown, blown up. Those people will have the aid and the support coming directly. They'll be able to literally get in a van and stop for coffee halfway there and with, with weapons and fighters and materials to aid Hezbollah, which will be a threat to, to and we know what they did to the right. Marine barracks, will be a threat to Israel, but a threat to the entire West. So I think it's an issue of helping the Christians and the Yazidis and, and, and the Turkmen. Also, it's, it's also making sure that the Iranians don't come in because, as Senator Shaheen asked a good question, if they control that area and buy up that property, it'll never be reversed, certainly not in our let, let me just say one other thing before the chair, and that is your last recommendation dealt with the H.R. 390, and as you pointed out in your testimony, that came through this committee. Uh, I think it came through unanimously. We worked on it, some amendments, and it's on the floor, so it's in a slightly different form than it came through the House. Uh, but w we were just conversing. We're, we don't see any challenges, so hopefully we can try to use it or do something to move it. it. It only came onto the committee maybe about, I mean, came onto the floor, came out of committee about 10 days ago. But I appreciate your encouragement of that, and I think that's a very strong bill. Yeah, hope we can get to it quickly. Procedural update, our understanding is there's a, I never heard of this term before, an informational hold. Um, so um, hopefully that- But somebody wants information before they vote? Yeah. That's so shocking. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that, hopefully we'll be able to work through that and yeah. then we'll have to work out the, the differences between the two, but we're hopeful that uh, there are some differences between the House and the Senate version, and so that makes it a little bit different than some of the other things we've done on this territory because we've had to, we got to figure out a process for working out those differences, but hopefully that, that will happen. I want to, um, uh, Dr. Mitali, I wanted to ask you first just about this whole, because you've talked about how the situation with the Kurds has exacerbated the difficulties, the broader difficulties in the region. And I know this kind of steps a little bit out of the lane of this hearing, but I think it's directly related to it, and that is um, whether, the whether the appropriate role of the United States at this point is to try to get both sides to sort of lower the tension and the rhetoric, not to do anything that provokes the other side to have to act or save face. In essence, is it not in the best interest of the United States viewing that issue holistically? And I think in the best interest of the parties involved to make the following argument to, the, to both sides, and that is we're not asking the, Kurdis, the Kurdistan or the Barzanis or anybody to abandon uh, their desires for independence, independence. What we are asking them to do is to take steps to uh, lower the sort of temperature and the, the rhetoric because there's still some issues that we need to be worked through. And the flip side would be, of course, the, to ask the government in Baghdad uh, to, to take some steps that would in no way be used against them to argue that they've somehow caved. But by the same token, 
show uh, a desire to uh, be open to dialogue on this topic in the future, but right now, sort of in the interim, um, try to lower uh, the temperature uh, as well, because there are still so many other issues at play. And in fact, the tension between these two is being used in many ways uh, by other actors in the region to sort of look for strategic advantage. Uh, do you think there's an openness on both sides to that, or are they, are they is there openness to that on both sides, or are they backing themselves into a corner from which they can only fight their way out of? Thank you, Senator Rubio. I agree with you um, that first and foremost, overall, we should be trying, and we have leverage to diffuse the tensions to say, just, you know, cool it or, or relax. And, there, and by the way, that is going on b behind the scenes. There's what's going on in the newspaper, and there's what's going on internally, and there is these, these issues. Here, here's, here's where I would say, Yes, and um, the referent. We have to be careful about the way that we deal with the Kurds as well, in the sense that absolutely important partners, um, invaluable Peshmerga support. But if we're emphasizing the territorial integrity of the Iraqi state, enhancing Iraqi state institutions, there are parts of overemphasizing, or I, I should be careful about the using the word coddling, does not allow negotiations either. So the negotiations will occur, but if we're, we're not using our leverage to the point that says, and we've been very clear, and I, and I agree with the statements, you also need to go down to Baghdad because we are sending a lot of things to you. So I'll be frank, my discussions the week, I was there three days before the referendum, and many told me, they said, this is great, now at least we got your attention. Okay, there was a lot of pressure not to have it done, uh, we're back. Um, you can't forget about us now. And, there's a, and again, there's an honest desire to have this. There were many people who did not want to have this, and they know they have to negotiate with Baghdad. So yes, push that, push and encourage our partners because we are providing them with military support. So my, my question is, how are we going to use our leverage to encourage that negotiation? Because they said to me, you can't, you're not going to do anything. What are you going to do? You need us too much. So our attitude is, we're too important for you, and anything that happens to us, you'll come and save us. And in Iraq right now, most of the Iraqis, apart from the prime minister, is very moderate. He's, the problem is most Iraqis now, and Arab Iraqis, Sunni and Shia, are reacting to this. So he's being pressured by the people. And so we, again, our role is to mediate that, but because we have so much leverage with the Kurds, to be very careful continue that partnership, but don't overly enable to the point where nobody thinks they have to cut a deal. And I don't think that we've worked that part out quite well. Well, I, my only, the only addition I would make to that is, uh, you know, I do think the, my feeling is that the, the government of Kurdistan would probably be open to a number of measures, joint patrols of certain crossings, um, uh, perhaps an increased revenue uh, flow back to, to Baghdad, so long as they are not uh, asked to completely abandon or feel like they somehow have foreclosed the ability for a dialogue in the future about their status. I think the, the potential irritant that no one has counted on is the capability of Iranian-controlled militia groups to act right. unilaterally That's right. uh, against a, a border crossing or a territorial space in order to trigger a conflict that they view would be beneficial to their desire to have control over the region and over those uh, oil-producing places in particular. So that's an actor that's probably even outside of a body's in control and, and a part of this dangerous game in the region. So um, it's something to bear watching because yes. there are, in the context of this hearing, a significant number of religious minorities who have sought and received refuge within the Kurdish areas uh, whom will be directly impacted if this thing heads in a, in, a, in a bad direction, and so we should, that's why it's related to the topic we're discussing here today. I, I agree with you. I agree with that point. I just want to make one more caveat, and that is be also careful with our Kurdish partners, and this has been, again, written in the documents by the Assyrian Federation of, of Europe, that many of them think that they're also being erased by some of the Kurdish authorities as well. So we, again, we have to be careful. Baghdad's fault is they're not paying enough attention. The, some of the Kurdish region's fault is that they're, they're trying to, they've confiscated lands. The lands were not just confiscated by Iranians, they were confiscated by the Kurdistan regional government as well, and this is documented. So we need to be careful and to, and to persuade and encourage our partners 
to watch this behavior. If we ignore it and we turn our eye, then it will continue. So good partners and good friends tell their friends not to do these things that are undermining the minorities as well. Okay. Um, Mr. Wolf, let me, when, you may have alluded to this in your statement, and I may have missed it, and I apologize, but when you were there, your recent trip, did you visit with the UN officials during your trip? Yes, we did. So did they indicate to you that they'd received guidance from the State Department or USAID regarding how U.S. assistance dollars were to be handled and spent? No, they, they did not. The woman who runs the UN is American from Texas, very, very capable person. Uh, she came up and briefed us and I think was doing a very good job, but she did not get into that. Many of the Christians that will not go in to the UN-run camps because they are afraid. I mean, just the, the young lady yesterday who said she saw, and I think she can better explain it than I can, she saw the man who did terrible things to her living in a camp. And so the Christian community are afraid to go into the camps. And many of the Yazidis are also afraid to go in. But overall, I think the UN has done some very good things. It just hasn't gotten down to the Christians and the Yazidis and some of the religious minorities. Well, just that fact you point to right there, is it your view or did you raise that? Uh, was it raised in front of you to the UN officials while you were there that a lot of the people who need this aid can't get it because they are afraid to come to where you are because of some of the people around here? Yes. And their response was? Uh, there really wasn't a response. I mean, it's been common knowledge that if, if a Christian family is going to go into a camp, is, is in the next tent? Is, it, is the brother an ISIS supporter? Uh, you're just not going to go there. Many of the Christians have left, have, have gone north. They're in Erbil. They're in different camps. They're in old shopping malls. Others have moved into Turkey. Uh, others have moved into Lebanon. Others have moved different, different places. Many would want to come, come back. It's a beautiful country. Uh, the northern part of Iraq is, is, is magnificent. The biblical history there, well, we were there one other time. We went to Nahum's tomb, Old Testament. The history is so rich, and they love their country. And I may say, they are really people of strong faith. And so they, but they're not going to go into those camps. They're yeah. just not going so, to go. And uh, so I think it's our, and most of our money has been gone into the UN. It's now time for Mark Green to, 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 to take some of that and give it to the Yazidis and give it, let's have a counseling program for the Yazidi women and girls. Let's bring in IJM or let's bring in uh, uh, different psychological people to give counseling. We met with the leader of the, of the Yazidi community, Baba Charis. Uh, they need help when they rescue these people. What do these women do? And so they need help. But also let's give it to the Christian community and Bartella uh, Karakush, when they come back, the water system and help them with their housing. So they feel, and I think if you talk to the Knights of Columbus and some of the others, they, and let me say, the Knights of Columbus have done an incredible job. Another group, Samaritan's Purse, have done an incredible job. I was with the Catholic nun, Sister Diana. She said Samaritan's Purse. I asked Samaritan's Purse, they say Knights of Columbus. I mean, it's the most ecumenical group over there. They love each other. Give it, work it through. Samaritan's Purse, work it through Knights of Columbus, work it through uh, a world, world Vision, work it through them and let them, but the Christian community, not for any overt meanness, but has been neglected. And now that ISIS has pretty much, not totally, pretty much been defeated, this is a time to aid the Christian community, the Yazidi community, including counseling for these young, young girls. Yeah, as of this moment, but they the told way, us there were 3,000 girls still being held. But the best way to describe the situation then is uh, there's no uh, ill will here. There's no uh, bad faith. The United States Congress has appropriated and directed that American taxpayer funding be directed to assist religious minority, including Yazidis and Christian communities. The money has been sent to the UN in order to do that. The UN would say the money's here. It's available. They can come receive the aid, but they don't come for the reasons you've outlined. And as a result, our intent is not being carried out, and it doesn't seem like the UN officials feel as if they're under any sort of directive to do anything other than to say it's available, but, but not go any further than that in terms of asking why are people not utilizing it or why are they not coming? I, I, I think you summed it up. I would like to see some of our money go to Samaritan's Purse, to World Vision, to Knights of Columbus. And that's to organizations that are going out to those in need as opposed to waiting for them to come. Right, they're, they're out there. Samaritan's Purse runs a hospital in Mosul, just outside Mosul, I've, I've, I visited. 
all they treat are Muslims. All they, well, give it to, give it to Samaritan's Purse. Give it to Sister Di- Diana. Give it to the Knights of Columbus. The, uh, the Knights of Columbus, they're, they're rebuilding villages. So refunnel. I'm not saying we take everything that goes to the UN, but refunnel some of that money and give it to groups who are really not who are new, who are saying, I'll go in if you give it to me, who are already there. Samaritan's Purse has been there for a couple of years. Knights of Columbus have been there for a couple of years. Sister Diana, the Dominican sisters, are from there. Give some of the money to them so they can help their own community, not because they're Christians, but because they've been subject to genocide. Give it to some of the Yazidi groups, not because they're Yazidis, but because they've been subject to genocide. So divert some of the money that's going to the UN and give it to some of these groups. So then my last question is your uh, suggestion of a special coordinator would be someone that would sort of oversee this process and, and, and make sure that some of these steps are taken. It could, and I'm not against the notion of a special coordinator, but I guess my question is, it is also something that USAID, under our current structure, could also take it upon themselves to, to drive these funds in that direction, or, but you just feel that it won't happen given all the other things USAID is facing. I think there's a resistance in government to, to, to do this, and secondly, it isn't only AID, Senator. You need somebody at the State Department uh, who's not AID. You need somebody who can c- talk to General Mattis at the Department of Defense. You need, I mean, it needs to be when, I think the model really was Senator Danforth. He was able to go anywhere in the government to deal with the problem. There was some, there, there was some security problems. There was, there were aid, they were giving the student, the government was aiding the Lord's resistant army. He was able to go everywhere. So this person, has to have the ability not only to deal with AID, the State Department, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, CIA, everybody. Also, I believe it is important to bring to justice those who have done what they have done to the Christians and the Yazidis. And they, they, unless we go in, we, we went in the tunnel where, where uh, uh, ISIS said, dust the tunnel, find the fingerprints. I had a young Yazidi girl come by my office a couple of months ago, six, seven, eight months ago. Her name was Bazi. Uh, you ought to talk to her. She said the man who held her and did terrible things to her was an American citizen who used to show her on his cell phone pictures of his wife and children back in the United States. Where is Abdullah Ameriki? Let's track him down. Let's do fingerprints. Why have we not brought cases against those who beheaded the American citizens, the four American citizens? Track them down. Bring them to justice. It took, we used to fund my committee. We funded the International Criminal Court. We funded Crane to come after Sierra Leone, Charles Taylor. They're all in jail now. It took a lot of effort. The same thing should be done to bring justice because if these people don't bring, be brought to justice, many will embed in. Do you ever remember this story five, ten years ago? You find a former worker at a General Motors plant was a Nazi. They bet in, they come over there. Let's find those people, bring them to justice. The international criminal, bring them here. So I, I think this person has to be bigger than just dealing with Mark Green at AID. Got it. Senator Kane. Just one last point. In, in response to Congressman Wolf, your, your point about there may be a better way to spin this aid, there's a bill that's uh, I think it has now been introduced, the, co- the main sponsors are Senators Corker and Coons, and I'm on as a co-sponsor, to basically study multilateral you know, aid, uh, donations to multilateral organizations to achieve ends versus direct, either bilateral or unilateral, including to NGOs. And I co-sponsored. I'm, I'm a fan of multilateral aid. I like it, but I'm, I'm really agnostic at the end of the day. I just wanted to do the job for which it's intended. And it's a, it's a fairly large study but this may be the kind of an example that we could use in a study like that. Okay, let's see the dollars we're putting in. Um, how effective are they going through a multilateral channel in accomplishing, you know, anti-genocide or, or, or relief for displaced persons? And we can compare it to more direct or, or bilateral solutions. And I think it is a bill that could give us some opportunity. And this is an example that we could look at. So I appreciate bringing that up. Yeah, it's an important point because what I hear you describe, uh, uh, Mr. Wolf, uh, is that basically a whole-of-government coordinator that can bring to bear the different agencies and tools available to the United States government in a coordinated fashion, not just to deliver aid and relief, but also reconstruction, assistance with governance, 
and justice, bringing people to justice, and in particular, this horrifying case that you outlined of a U.S. citizen, and, and uh, if that individual is still alive, uh, they should be brought to justice, and, and, and even if they're not, their name and circumstances should be known to the American people. Do you have anything further? Because it's uh, we've, we've gone beyond her a lot of time, and I thank you both for being so patient because of our hearings and the vote and the like. This was an important hearing, as can, you can tell, but by the, uh, the attendance and the interest, and, and I'm glad you were able to shine light on it, but more importantly, that you were both able to provide us with specific public policy recommendations. Often we have these hearings, we hear a lot about the problems and some vague notions. You've both been pretty specific, uh, which is very helpful in terms of our work here and what to advocate for what to what 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 we need to be pushing for and so we thank you both for that um the, the record for this hearing is going to remain open for the next 48 hours so again i want to thank both of you for your patience your time and your work on this topic it's a lot of hard work your dedication to it is very critical and uh, again thank you and, and without this hearing is adjourned